ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Today's conversation includes content that might be upsetting. Please take care when listening. Stephen Smith got his first proper job as a teenager working in the food hall at David Jones. Having this job was a big deal because it meant that Stephen didn't need to live in a squat or in his car anymore. Stephen had had an unstable childhood, shifting from home to foster home, but the job at DJ's gave him his first steady income. And from the food hall, Stephen Smith made the next obvious move, which was to become an opera singer. Everything changed for Stephen after a colleague overheard him singing during a shift. Alongside his beautiful voice, Stephen was able to bring a whole world of love and loss and longing to his roles on stage. After a life stranded on the margins, not quite knowing where he fit in, it must have been exhilarating to be centre stage and to give voice to all that feeling in song. After some stops and starts, Stephen ended up as a principal artist for Opera Australia before swapping the stage for the auctioneer's gavel. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Richard. Stephen, let's start right at the beginning. You were born in Auckland. What do you know of how your parents met each other? So my father was, uh, he would have been 57 at the time, um, Western District boy from Victoria, and mum was a a 22-year-old Samoan girl, and uh, they they met through, through letters. I don't quite know how the letters came about, but they got communicating through that method, and my father ended up proposing through letters they'd never met and uh, mum coming from I think Samoa at the time was probably uh, more or less a third world country and her father was very keen for her to take up this proposition from this Australian man who would obviously provide a better life so she accepted and dad flew across to Samoa and got off the plane and mum burst into tears and the reason was she she described it that um, well he was in his 50s but he described himself that he was in his 40s and sent a photo of himself in his 30s and um, oh, no. didn't quite oh, line up. So uh, obviously, you know, that, that wasn't quite what she expected, but followed through, the wedding took place and in the week that they were together in Samoa, she got pregnant and um, he flew home to Australia and she stopped off in New Zealand, as was the the way you had to do it at the time to get your, your papers to come to Australia. And th- that was it for the two of them. And, and lucky me, managed to um, find my way to life in that brief uh, week they spent together. Is that how long the marriage lasted? A week? Yeah, yeah. And I dare say it wasn't a happy week. Um, it was probably happy for Dad, but not so much for, for Mum. So what happened after you were born then, Steve? Well, Mum thought... Uh, there'd be a better life for me with my father here in Australia. And she was quite isolated. She was staying with a family. She was away from her family, didn't have people. And obviously the the marriage wasn't something she wanted to to continue with. And oh, gee, 22, 23, you, you've got your whole life in front of you. So I can see how one might be in a different world and need to preserve that. So she, when I was only a few months old, she uh, put me on a plane and brought me across to Australia and gave me to my father. Now, I think he expected that there might have been some reconciliation. Um, that that, I, that much I, re- I recall. But uh, that, that wasn't to be. She handed me over and flew back to New Zealand and dad was standing there holding a three-month-old and trying to work out how as a, a single man in his late 50s he would make it all work. Did she ever talk to you about what it was like to hand you over at that stage? Yeah, look, I, I didn't meet mum till, till later, but um, I've had the stories come through later in life and 
she's she's full of regret. There's no question about that, um, the sadness around doing that. And people inherently make the best decisions in the circumstances they find themselves with the, the tools they have at their disposal. So I can imagine for her at the time that was what she needed to do for her. But of course, as we get older and our perspectives change and we see the way the consequences of our actions roll out, it's it's not difficult to be filled with regret and that's certainly where she has found herself. So there you are as a small baby in the hands of your father who is got a photo of himself in his 30s, his Tinder profile has him in his 40s, and, um, <laughs> but in fact he is in his mid-50s. Did he end up looking after you as a baby then? No, well, he, he wasn't in a position to do so whilst he had the firm desire to do so. He neither had the family support, the time available to him, nor the income to make those things happen and had to explore other options. I think I stayed with some family for a, a very short period of time while other arrangements were made and, and then found my way into, I believe the next step was the Anglican baby's home, which I don't, I don't even think it exists anymore. But I, I had a memory of this, this grand staircase with a, you know those horses that you used to get outside the supermarkets or at the shopping centres? They're probably still there. You put oh, 20 yeah. cents in and they... Yeah, so I had a, a, rec- a recollection of this this horse at the top of this staircase and, and I was told that that was from this baby's home. But Dad always kept in touch. Um, so from the baby's home, um, I was then put into uh, some short-term foster care. I'm not sure how many families I found my way through, but I, I, my main recollection is of two two families. And the second one was the the Meeks family. And I, I stayed with them for, it was about eight years in the end with differing levels of contact with my father along the way. They were the closest thing you had to a mum and dad in that period. Oh, for, for me, that that was mum and dad. And, and that's what they were called. And, and I remember it, I must have been five or six being asked if I wanted to perhaps change my surname, you know, really be part of the family. And that was something I, I grabbed onto. And it's interesting the way perspectives differ because to me that was mum and dad. I had my older brother who was five years older than me and and then my younger sister who was I think five years younger and we were the three in there who were either adopted or, or, or fostered. And then they had five children of their own who were who were older. They would have been teenagers by this stage or teenagers or older. You mentioned you had an older foster brother there. What was your relationship like with him? We were very close. He was my he was my idol. But we were also very competitive and he was bigger, he was older, I was more intelligent, if I can if I can just call it yeah. as it is. Yeah. Um so when it came to, to games and those sorts of things, uh it was pretty close, but he would always d- do the older brother thing and change the rules, shift the goalposts and all of that <laughs> to ensure that ensure that he would win. You know, it's like, oh no, it's 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 six if it's over the fence, unless it goes over the gate. That doesn't count. That's that's just a straight out. Classic. Um <laughs> classic, yeah, exactly. So yeah. that was my relationship with him as a as a child. And and as as I got older, he was I think it's probably fair to say he, he lacked a conscience and um, where people were things uh, if they served his purpose. And, and who were you in that world then, Stephen? Oh, I was his pet, I think it's probably what it was. I I was the person that gave him a sense of identity, a sense of, of worth. I looked up to him and I think he needed he needed that. And I was gullible for many, many years with him, probably until I was uh, around 18 or so. So he he was indulging in borderline or actual criminal behaviour. Did he bring you in on that as well? Oh, yeah, he taught. I think at maybe the age of five or six, he uh, taught me how to shoplift. 
and teach me how to hide it in the palm of your hand or shove it in your pocket. And and then as as we got older, after I'd further down the track, he would steal cars and take me for rides. And he was in and out of prison constantly. And not not a smart criminal. He just I didn't really consider the obvious consequences of his actions. So you went back to live with your dad for a while in Port Ferry and then that didn't work out. Did you want to go back and live again with the Mix family? And what happened when you tried to go back and live with the Mix family? As, as a, a child in foster care or adoption, you're always, you, you dream of going to live with your real mum or your real dad. And, and that opportunity came to me and it, it was amazing. It was like the dream come true all of a sudden, expecting that the weekend dad would be the full-time dad and that's how things would be. It all be rosy. And Nonetheless, it's it's not how it, it played out and uh, he was older and more like a grandfather and I was young and headstrong and ran circles around him and really had no boundaries. And as a, you know, as a young teenager or in your, your tweens, oh, I certainly needed that and without those boundaries, I completely ran off the rails and, and I was lonely and I was miserable and I missed the, having people around and I, was, I didn't have anyone to help me through the challenges of, of puberty and such and all the changes that are going on and the social changes. And so I reached out via the social workers to, um, to, to go back. It's like, well, this isn't working. I, I want to go, I want to go home. And conversations were had and the, the phrase that sticks out for me um, that came back to me was that mm, Stephen has changed. We have changed um, we don't believe it would work, and if it didn't work, then he'd be left with, with no one. And it's funny the things that stick, or, or, or that actually have a a much bigger impact down the track. And I think, you know, that thing that you know we have changed, he has changed, has really, I think it struck me through the years as I, I took on board, I guess. A, a certain level of responsibility that oh I I've done I've done something wrong I can't go home because because I've I've done done something wrong. Did you take it to mean that you're a bad person, and did you take that to heart? I don't know that I th- I was conscious of it at the time, and you know memories being what they are, I I couldn't recall that, but I know it's impacted my relationships with people, my fear. I have this 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 deep seated fear now that if I haven't spoken to someone for a while, I find it incredibly difficult to reach out and and on a very subconscious level, we've worked out that because on various times in in my life, that being one of them, I've suffered this rejection for things that I've not actually done or, or that other people might have done and, and such that that when I go to reach out to someone I've not spoken to for a while, there's this fear that something might have happened and now I'm I'm in trouble that 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 just a couple of words to change the meaning can can really affect someone and fair enough situations had, had changed at my own there's there's no doubt about it and they would never have known the, the impact that that might have had so where did you go then what, what happened was that they then said well let's do the occasional visit so that's sort of where we went it was more like a reverse foster care arrangement I, I would go and visit them maybe once a month, pop down for a weekend or something. I don't, it, it might've only been a couple of visits. And I remember, oh, it's funny, shame's a funny thing because I go to tell the story now that shame wells up in me, but we moved past that. I remember as a, yeah, I would have been 12 or 13, yeah, when I was visiting them using some computer programs and, um, and, and, and grabbing the discs and shoving them in my bag to take home when I left because I wanted those. And 
stealing them. Let, let's let's call it what is a stole some stole some computer disks and and then getting the message coming through to say that this had happened. They're aware and my recollection was I was I was cut off told no that's this isn't going to work. Now I think it's important to to look at from the family's perspective. They had had the older brother who had mentioned who was stealing from the family who was just absolutely wreaking havoc in there. So it makes sense that one goes, well, hang on, that's happened there. We see a similar pattern here. Yep, no, need to protect uh, the family and such. So completely understand it. So that left you stranded in, well, stranded, is that the word, for, in Port Ferry in uh, Western Victoria? Yeah, well, I was there and, and such. But, but look, by the time I got to 15, I was bored. It didn't have the stimulation. It didn't have the life. It didn't. I didn't feel at home there. I, I was, um, you know, this young brown child in an environment where I didn't feel part of it. I didn't feel part of it and I needed excitement. So I came up to Melbourne for a, for a wedding and I stayed with my foster brother who was, I think at the time he was in a halfway house. Um, he'd just got out of prison and I went to stay with him. I think we may have moved in actually with the Meekses again. They, they said, yes, we can see changes. Come, come and stay. So moved in there and I, I I had a, a, a little job that I was doing, but then he got arrested and I got a phone call at work to say, you're just like him, all your stuff's out the front, Yeah, we, we, we don't want anything to do with you. And so I was at 15, I did, didn't have anywhere to stay in Melbourne at the time, I ended up going into a, a number of youth refuges from there and then into a squat and then I got, I got the most terrible beating I've ever had in my life. How did um, you get that, Stephen? oh, we had some others staying with us and we kicked them out and I was there a few days later just lying on my bed and the door flew open and three of them came running in while I was on the ground and just laid their boots in relentlessly. And I remember afterwards um, seeing the room just covered in blood and, and when they stopped and they left, I, I jumped over the fence to the neighbour's house and um, I was sitting at the back and they'd called the ambulance and there was a pool of blood underneath and... The ambulance took me up to the hospital and they very quickly moved me on and sent me out out the door and I, I didn't have anywhere to go. I remember finding my way to Preston train station and obviously massively concussed um, and catching the train down to Clifton Hill and at Clifton Hill to get onto the Hurstbridge line you'd have to walk under the tracks and then and then back up the other side. And I remember just lying on the, the the bench on the station, unable to move, let alone cross the tracks. And some some guy came and gave me ten or twenty dollars, and could could see my my struggles. And and that that hit home. That you know, I'd been having all this great fun here. I'd I'd, I'd been learning to sing and dance with others that I'd met and that I was staying with in this squat. And that was a really exciting time. We'd go down to St Kilda Beach and that's where we'd we'd learn our songs. We were going to be the next big group. It was going to be shy, colour me bad, boys to men and whatever <laughs> we were going to call ourselves. And it was wonderful. But that was really, I think, where the love of music, of singing, of performing, of of being at the fore, that was really where that came out. So you were doing all the singing even though you were living in a squat in Northcote, but then you got this bad, bad beating and... Was anyone checking in on you, Stephen? You're 15. I mean, was anyone keeping an eye on you? No. From from that age, I, I was very much, and even before that, I think probably from the age of 12 or 13, I was I was master of my movements. Dad 
I think ordinarily, you know, Dad would have been the person to do it in any other family, but Dad was in his late 60s. He might, actually might have been 70-odd by then and really had no no oversight. He was a very gentle man but would avoid confrontation. And how about your mum? Had you been in contact with her throughout this whole period? Oh, I'd had two contacts with mum up to that point. I remember at the age of six or seven I was at school and I had a phone call to come home because my mum was there. And I went and and there she was and I spent this wonderful day with her and I've got a photo of it actually. And, and then And then she was gone. And what I didn't know was that she'd shown up to take me home. She'd, she'd realised that, no, actually, um, no, that's my son. I want my son. And she'd come along with her, her partner or, and, uh, and some friends and turned up on the doorstep of the foster family to say, yep, I'm here to, here to take my son. Where is he? And, I mean, you could imagine the turmoil that that would have caused um, as they're then on the phone to the social workers and trying to you know, rally the forces to, to shore things up and explain that, well, no, you can't just, you can't take him. You have to go through a process and get to, he doesn't know you. Uh, so that was, that was a big occasion. And then there were some letters that went back and forth. This woman called mum would send me presents every now and then. And, and it wasn't until I'd moved in with my father and I would have been in grade six when I was at a friend's house and I got a call from him to say, you better come home. Your, your mother's here. And she arrived in Port Ferry with her husband and my two half-sisters and was there for sort of three to five days. And I spent those days with them and it was joyous and it was exciting. And there were siblings and my mum and all these all these amazing things. It was, it was like a dream and until the day they, they had to leave and, and they left. And I remember just the, the pit in my stomach, the just absolutely gutted. One of the saddest feelings I can remember and the emptiness, the, the emptiness. And I have a recollection of barely eating for, for several weeks afterwards for the, the, that sense of loss. They were there and then they were gone. So then at 15, during this period of homelessness, did you go searching for her again? Well, after I'd come back to stay with Dad, again, I'm back in Port Ferry now and, oh, it was, it was boring at that age. And I've since, since discovered that... Uh, I am. Um, <laughs> I suffer from ADHD. Well, I, I suffer and I enjoy, or others suffer from my ADHD. <laughs> all, all of the above. Um, but it explains a lot about my childhood behaviours and the way things have gone. But no one had oversight of me to say, "Well, actually, hang on, maybe there's something going on here that we could help with." You know, my my, my aversion to boredom is uh, extreme. So to be back in Port Ferry, it was never going to last. I had to get out of there, and I, I looked up. I was looking through the photo album and I found the photo of my sister, Lisa, my half-sister from my mother, and flipped it over and on the back of her little school photo was her name and I thought, oh, I wonder if I can find them. And I went up to the phone booth at the front of the caravan park that Dad and I lived in and flicking through the Sydney phone book and found them and I called the number and this lady answered and I've gone, Mum? And she's, oh, no, I think you've got the wrong number. Sorry. Oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's Stephen. And she was shocked and amazed and delighted and encouraged me to, to come, come. And it was, it was late afternoon, I think, by this time. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. So I went back into, 
into the house or the caravan rather. Well, it was a mobile home, somewhere in between. I grabbed my bag and I shoved a couple of things in there and I don't even know what I said to dad if I said anything or I just did as I did and just kept going and um, walked out onto the road and put my thumb out and managed to hitchhike to Melbourne just in time to get the overnight train to Sydney. I called her from the station to say, I'm, I'm getting on the train, meet me in Sydney in the morning. And she did. And it was, I think the best way I could describe it is it, it was like falling in love. It was this this connection. And, and you know, I'd been searching for for connection. I'd been searching for for belonging. And I've spent much of my life trying to work out who am I and where do I belong. And 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 here was this moment. It's like, yeah, here I am. I'm with my mum. I've got my sisters. And, and she took me straight to meet aunts and uncles and cousins and more cousins and people who were all just so welcoming and so, so glad to have me there. I was known. They knew me. They wanted me there. It was quite overwhelming. But what I what I didn't factor was the disruption that you know my presence would have on on mum's marriage. And uh, I mean, you can imagine having a fifteen year old stepson uh, uh, arriving in your family with all these quirks and getting all the attention and fresh off the streets and running amok and being treated like royalty. It put a lot of pressure on them, and naturally there was rivalry between him and me. And and then it got to the point a few months later where I I went to I was sent to Samoa. To, where did you stay when you went to Samoa? Oh, so my, my grandparents were, were living there along with my, my half-brother and, uh, again, cousins, aunts, uncles, more cousins, more cousins, more cousins. So I went to stay with them and having grown up in, in various different scenarios in Melbourne, but essentially, you know, an Australian upbringing, to arrive in uh, a country where the, the, the roads were all unpaved, they were all dirt roads and uh, there were no traffic lights and there was no McDonald's and the, the buses were made of wood uh, put on the back of trucks and there was no hot water. The, all the food got cooked on the, the fire, which had to be built outside. The children obeyed their, their parents and grandparents. It was very much an ageist, <laughs> ageist structure. Church played an enormous role and the food was so different. The weather was so different. And uh, an insane amount of singing, like this extraordinary singing culture there where people sing all the time and sing together. How did that hit you, Stephen? It was, it was amazing. At church, there's obviously singing, but it wasn't just the, the, the hymns that are being sung. They're all being sung in four-part harmony. And then you go to school and school assembly in the morning, all the songs are sung with these amazing clapping rhythms. And then, of course, it's, uh, there's extended grace that's said before dinner and uh, it's songs and hymns, again, by the whole family in four-part harmony. Does it make life a lot more joyful, singing like that? And why don't we all do this all the time? What's wrong with us? What's wrong with the rest of us? Why aren't we all like that? I don't know. I don't get it. I don't know. Maybe we don't have permission to do so or we haven't found the way to do so. But I've come to realise that singing for me has become or has always been a a key part of how I regulate my nervous system because I'll sing endlessly as I I walk through the supermarket or down the street or wherever I am. But, But also when I need to calm myself down. There are certain things I sing that just have that effect on my body. Or if if I don't sing, I get sad and depressed and my my energy disappears. And I I know I'm not doing well when I think, wow, I haven't sung for for a while. There's something very yeah, animalistic about the production of sound and the different sounds we make and the effect they have on our physiology and the physiology of, of others around it. What happens on a Sunday? in Samoa. And what's your role? What was your role within the family on that Sunday? 
Oh, Sundays, it's, it's very much church and food preparation. On Sunday, you'd often have a, a, an umu, is, is what it's called. It's, it's like a ground oven where you, you build a fire and you heat the rocks on top of the fire, heat those up, and then once the fire's gone out, you've got these hot rocks, you, you put the food and then rocks and food and rocks and then cover it all up with banana leaves and palm leaves and Beautiful. such. Beautiful. Oh, so good. So, and, but there's a huge amount of work that goes into that. And rather than the system that often takes place here where it's, you know, parents serving the children, it's like, no, children do their part. So it's the children largely or the younger members who do this work. What was that like for you given that you'd been such a tearaway to suddenly be in a culture where you do as you're told and you listen to your elders and you obey without question? Yeah. Well, I think what I said was that children do as they're told and they obey and, and without question and such. I was never very good at those things and um, <laughs> and, uh, and I was a little bit on the edge. But, but certainly my, my, my half-brother, Tavita, or, or David in English, he was the one who would do all those things. And I would, I would float around the edges and, and help out. But I never really integrated properly. I, I was always my own person and um, and my grandfather, people couldn't believe that he would let me, he'd let me have drinks and he'd buy me cigarettes. And that was, that was unheard of because he was such a strict, he was a hard man. Um, but somehow I was the, I was the golden child, the special one who'd get away with whatever. So my experience was a little different, but, but seeing the work that went in from, from others there was, it, it was, it was really eye-opening. Because I was the sort of person who I, I couldn't do anything unless I, I was really interested in it or wanted to do it. Uh, otherwise, just forget it. Oh, there's, there's no way. School, forget it. Boring, not going to do it. That, that work, no, nah, not going to do it. I'd rather just do whatever else. It was so different to what I knew. listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So how long did you stick it out for in summer? Well, I was sent, sent back to school because I dropped out at year nine. I, I was totally disinterested in school. I was sent to school and it's like, okay, I'll do that. And my grandmother made my uniform. And so I went for the, just one term of school. And uh, I, again, I, I don't know that I was a very good student. Um, and, and by the end of the, the year, which was only about four months in total that I was there, I was, I was a bit bored and I was a bit uh, unsettled and I, I wanted to come home. And so that's, that's what I did. I called my father and I said, oh, I, I want to come home. Can you pay for my airfare? And but what was home in Australia? Ah, great question. So I, I, I flew back and Sydney, Sydney wasn't home with mum and the family. That, that didn't feel like where I, I felt most myself. Uh, Port Ferry with dad, that, that, that wasn't it. For me, home was coming back to find the guys that I was with in the squats and the youth refuges in Melbourne. Home was homelessness in a way. Yeah, yeah. I'd managed to convince my father when I got back to Sydney from Samoa to buy me a car and I'd, I'd pay it back, of course, and I, I never did. And, and I got this car and I was seven, 17 at the time, almost 17. 
So I drove from Sydney down to Melbourne in this in this car and I remember being pulled over by the police along the way and uh, they're like, can we see your licence? And, uh, and I've turned around to them and said, oh, geez, bro, uh, shit, I haven't got my licence. I, I forgot it. I left it behind. I've, I've got a New Zealand licence. And, uh, and, and we're in the middle of nowhere here and the policeman, he's got, oh, I think he's just rolled his eyes and he said, look, I've got to write you a fine for the, I've got to write you a fine for the speeding. So here it is. Um, I'm just going to go back to my car now. I've got some paperwork to do. If you just happened to drive off, I probably wouldn't notice. So he was obviously a pragmatic gentleman and I was very grateful for it. But I got back to Melbourne and I drove to, I drove to Northcote Bowl, which is where we'd go on occasion with my guys from Melbourne, Samar and George and Rob. And, and I, I rocked up at Northcote Bowl just on the off chance that they might be there and Samar was there and it was on for young and old. And I, I don't even know where he was staying at the time, but within a, a very short period that two of us were just living out of my car. Again, these things sound awful, living in a squat, yeah, living know, in a car. I think I've spent all of, in my whole life, I think I've spent all of one night sleeping in a car and it wasn't great. <laughs> it wasn't great, Stephen. I just don't know what that's like to live day after day in your car. Yeah, well, I think for many people it would be challenging. I think if, if that was the only option available to you, I mean, that's, that's, that's devastating. And as an adult now, looking back at 16-year-old me as if he's someone else, oh, I feel very sad um, for that boy. But for me as the 16-year-old, I was, I was where I wanted to be. I didn't want to be in these other places. I wanted to be where the people who understood me or, or, or got me or took me as I was were. I wanted to be singing and, and dancing. I wanted to be in Melbourne where there was excitement. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anywhere to stay. But I had a friend. I had understanding and I had music. And that was that was all I needed. So whilst a lot of the people I knew were getting into drugs and things that have very negative life outcomes... For me, it was no. We were singing. We we had we had dreams um, that I don't think we were ever going to achieve. But we didn't know that. We had this joyous ignorance and this love of what we were doing. So you got this job at David Jones in the food hall. What was the work like? Oh, it was good actually. Um, oh, I quite like repetitive labour. Oh, I, I find it really great fun. I used to pick flowers and such. And, and again, it was just a race. It's like, you do the same thing. How can I refine the technique? How can I do this quicker? And it was the same with setting up fruit stands and those sorts of things. But um, what, what I used to do in the morning, so you'd arrive at six o'clock and the shop wouldn't open till nine. You've got three hours to get the displays all set up before people arrive. And you've, you've got the truck comes, you unload the truck, you put it upstairs, you bring the stock down, rotate it through. And so we, we'd have the radio playing or the CD player playing with uh, people like Dean Martin or, or Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett, these crooners. And I love that, that type of music. And as that's playing in the food hall, which echoes beautifully, I'd be singing along. And one day, a young lady who, who worked with me there by the name of Leanne, Leanne said to me, she said, Stephen, you've got a good voice. You should go and get lessons. Go and see my teacher. And what did you think of that suggestion? Oh, yeah, sounds good. No, I'm not doing much else. Why not? Yep. So um, I had no idea. So I, I went along and I met her teacher, Natalia, and Natalia asked me, have you done any singing before? And I said, oh, yeah, I've, I've been singing R&B and hip-hop. And, yeah, but have you had any lessons? No. Did you do it at school? No. 
okay, so you've not done any singing. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, and she had me doing some scales and such, and that was that was interesting as I because I quite like technical things and trying to work out how how my voice worked once I was given a challenge here like this. It's like, oh, should be easy, but that's that's interesting. How does this work? But the the kicker was, she played me some music. She introduced me to Pavarotti singing Nessun Dorma. She showed me the operas of Puccini, La, La Boheme and Manon Lescaut and these these stories. So, so the, the two things I was struck by was first, these voices, these voices like, they were like huge engines that, that just roared and it was amazing, the power and control that came out. And then, oh my God, these stories, these stories that would just break your heart and, and leave you just devastated. And the combination of those two things, just uh, special interest was born and this became my obsession for the next the next 20 years. And the other thing that was so important for me was I had someone in front of me who was saying, you can do this. I see something in you, something valuable, something special, something that most people don't have and you're a tenor. Now, that's so important because tenors in opera, you, 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 you're not there as the father or the old judge. No. Tenors are, tenors are the <laughs> heroes. Tenors are the lovers. And you're a tall tenor. So you're a tall tenor with a gorgeous voice. We've just got to teach you how to use it. And I left school at year nine, but she told me, you know what, you, can, you should audition for the Victorian College of the Arts because there you don't need to have your, your VCE. It doesn't matter about schooling. It's entirely audition-based. I go, oh, okay. So, so I did that, had the audition and just sort of scraped through with a little bit of assistance on the, um, the music theory side of it to be accepted. But then even being accepted to the VCA, I had to go through summer school of music theory. But... And then when I, when I was at uni, the, the singing part, the performance part, that's always something that's come, come quite naturally to me as long as I don't get into my head. And there was a period where I, I did that. But the, the technical side, the music theory side, I always struggled with. So what was it like for you then to reach a certain level of training to start making those heroic noises of a great tenor, to feel that voice starting somewhere <laughs> in your diaphragm and sort of come up out of you into the world. Yeah, and it, it, came, it came gradually because part of the thing is you, you don't quite know how to make the, the healthy big, big noise and, it, and you've, you've got to be brave enough to make a right royal mess of it out loud in front of everyone and, you know, make mistakes <laughs> but make them big. And, and I was always taught, yeah, if you're going to make a mistake, make an effect of it. Don't hide away from it. Just go with it. If you're going to crack cracked the living bejesus out of it. Um, and uh, and that, that's become, uh, you know, a fundamental part of my, uh, my performance psychology over time. <laughs> but it gives you permission to, to be brave and do the things you need to do. So, so in terms of the, that feeling of, of singing, and you talk about, you know, it coming up from the diaphragm, but it, it starts lower than that. It's, it's really, it's your entire being right from the tips of your toes. You think about when someone's in in pain or in agony and the the screams that they make or the or or the the roars that people will make in in a situation where they're you know in a violent situation and need to defend and all that adrenaline comes on it's it's full bodied now as an opera singer you learn to control it so that it's done healthily but yeah that 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 feeling that sensation there is nothing like it in the world. Does it reveal something of you to yourself 
when you hear yourself informed by all that feeling, feeling that you'd experienced and all that frustration and that sense of not belonging, that loneliness and alienation, and then you, you add that into that beautiful, large, amazing voice. Yeah. Were there times when that noise came out of you and you went, wow, did I really make that noise? There've certainly been times when something technical has clicked and all of a sudden you're capable of doing something you couldn't do before. Uh, all of a sudden the voice has a shine, has a brilliance, has an ease, finds its way into a, a, a register in a way you hadn't done before and you go, wow, um, and you start to compare it against you know, those, those masters that you've, you've, you've heard through the recordings or if you're lucky enough live. Um, and that, that really is quite profound to find for me, where I had a, I had a, I had a belief system around myself that I, I, I was never going to be anything, couldn't do anything. I was trouble. I was just going to end up in jail or in the gutter, or I, I wasn't valuable to people. And it's taken a long time to recognise that I've, I've spent my life hedging my bets around having people around me because there has been that fundamental belief at a core level that, yeah, people, people are going to move on. Well, there was obviously something wrong with me because my mum gave me up, my, my dad gave me up, my foster parents uh, let me go and then rejected me when I wanted to come back. Dad wasn't around, uh, got rejected again, first marriage broke up, second marriage, like the, all these things where it's like obviously people don't hang around, people are temporary in our lives, doesn't matter who they are and I didn't have a model to tell me otherwise so people were always going to go. So what was your stage debut then as a tenor? In my, my honours year at VCA, I had auditioned for, uh, for the role of Rodolfo with um, Eastern Metropolitan Opera, which, which doesn't exist anymore. And much to my amazement, I was, um, I was, I was given the role. So This is La Boheme, isn't it? La Boheme, yeah. that's right. And oh, um, Rodolfo and La Boheme was, was my dream role at the, at the time. And here's me as a 23-year-old, I think I would have been, making my, making my debut in the opera as a... As a as in my dream role, and oh, and I remember doing that production, and and at the time, my my, my marriage was 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 almost done. I had we had a child, so we, we met at the age of seventeen, a couple of young kids with no idea of who we were, um, and then I've gone on this musical journey, and um, I've been growing at a a rapid rate uh, in in a direction that was not the same direction that, that she was growing in. And and I think, you know, a lot of psychological traumas and such that I'd had played out in ways that um, yeah, weren't, weren't healthy within our relationship. So we were on the rocks and, and I had this had this, this dream role that I was doing and we'd come to the point where I was given a choice in, within my marriage of, well, it's, it's, it's us, uh, including my, my, my youngest son, at the t- well, my only son at the time, it's us or it's, it's opera, you make the choice. And uh, and and I, I chose family. Of, of course, that that's that's what we do, isn't it? You you sacrifice. You, you give up. You give up things, and you you you, you do the family thing. That's I know it wasn't done for me, but that that's what that's what we do. That's but you'd the, only just got started. Uh, yeah, I'd only got started. I barely got started. I'd just done three years, three and a half years of study, and I'm I'm about to do my my first role. So we'd agreed that I'd I'd finish this opera and and that that'd be it. So my first opera was also my my last opera at, at the time and, and, and I remember, you know, I remember falling in love as you do, like Rodolfo falls in love with, with Mimi and of course there's a certain amount of 
projection, you know, you, you don't just see the character. When you're at that stage, you know, that early, young young age, it's all brought to life and, you know, you get crushes and I had a stage crush and I had, so I had that going on and then my my marriage breaking down and, and this was my first show and my last show. So it was, there was so much emotion, so much invested in these this, these small number of performances and, and I remember taking my curtain call on the, the final night feeling like this was the last time I would ever ever be on stage it was it was so joyful and devastating and and all the things at once it was such a huge moment in time and and that was it I walked away from the stage so after that you left opera for a while and then the marriage broke up and once that had happened how quickly did you want to return to singing oh the following day that was it I moved into my place um my first my first place just of my own. Through, through all, all of this time, I'd never, never had a place that was, that was mine, that I had control of. And I walked in and the first thing I did was jump on the phone to my, my friends from VCA who I'd not spoken to since and, and my teacher, Natalia, who, who really was the one who'd started the journey and um, immediately went back to lessons and, and I auditioned for things and I reached out to the director who directed La Boheme. It was Caroline Stacey whose work I absolutely adored and and very quickly within a within a matter of of months I'd left the the courier driving which I was doing and little computer business that I was trying to get going and and such and um and I was a full-time singer within just a matter of months. It was it was amazing. And and, and where did that take you, Stephen? So that was 2002. I did an opera up in Canberra and then by 2003, Melbourne Opera had just splintered off from Melbourne City Opera at the time and was about to launch into their first season and I was lucky enough to um, have landed the the lead tenor roles in all three of the productions in the inaugural year. I think that year I did eight eight different operas um, for various various companies and then auditioned for Opera Australia and I'd, I was given roles in the touring production of, of Carmen as Don Jose, which I absolutely loved. And I was just living this wonderful life as a singer. I was a singer. That's what I did. It's who I was. And I was going through this period of growth of exploring and really finding myself on so many levels. Well, it, it then... wasn't boys to men, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a bad second best result, I'd say, <laughs> to that, was it, touring the world <clears throat> as an opera singer? No, not at all. And you know, I, as a child, it was um, I loved Young Talent Time, and then and then it was yeah, boy, it was R and B, and then we had Church and such in in Samoa, and then yeah, Opera. That's that's where it landed. And the thing I've really loved about Opera over the years is, and the theatre in general. And I don't I don't care if I'm on stage or I'm in the auditorium; it doesn't matter. That there's this magical place where the world disappears and oh, and new lives are born in front of us and you can you can explore these journeys and and I love it as a performer to be able to wear someone else's life dig through it find what's there and and share that with the audience find their joy find their trauma find their challenges connect that with the things that have happened in in your own life or the things that'll one would hope would never happen in your life and be able to explore all this and share it and go on a journey with everyone and then at the end of the show you you leave the space and life is fine. Life is what it was before you walked in. You didn't actually kill anyone. You didn't actually have any affairs. You, but you get to explore these spaces and and be someone else. And the thing I love about opera, about singing, is not only do you explore the lives of these people that you're portraying, but you portray it in you know with this full 
embodied voice, your body, your whole body from head to toe. If you are, if if your soul is crying, it is crying at 105 decibels, shaking the air in front of you. And that air then shakes the ears, the people in front of you, and you're physically affecting people. You can, the ability to uncover what's happening and reduce reduce yourself and reduce the audience to tears in a matter of seconds to be able to share that emotion, share that thing that's happening to you with other people is is something really, really magical. So, Stephen, you were able to fulfil all that promise. It's an extraordinary yes. story. And then you gave it away. Why did you want to give it away? Uh, the, the, the opera industry was changing um, in the early 2010s uh, such that there you know, the, the, the money wasn't there. There were a lot of foreign artists coming in, as, as there still are, and there's, there's arguments to and for um, that. But uh, ultimately, the, I was on, there were a number of us on full-time contracts as principal artists with Opera Australia. And then we had some, some, some surety. You'd know that after 12 months, you get another 12 months' work. And we weren't on great money, but it was secure. And you'd, you'd given up a lot of other relationships, if you like, with the other companies because cause the, the company more or less owned you. But those days were coming to an end. We, you could see the writing written on the wall. And I thought, well, I'm about to have a, another family. Um, my, my, my older boys back in Melbourne, um, they're, they're getting older. They're going to be grown up soon. Um, and, and I haven't spent anywhere near as much time with them as I thought I would um, in, in my naivety thinking, yeah, I can live in Sydney and spend lots of time in Melbourne and still tour and travel and, and such. And, and I thought, well, no, it's time. It's time to go. It's time to exit. Go back to Melbourne. Eleanor and I had spoken about me joining her in real estate when I retire from the stage. It's like, well, let's let's do that. Let's go back to Melbourne, and and put it all together. And that's that's what we did. And that was twenty twenty thirteen. Made the shift to Melbourne. Made the obvious shift from opera to real estate. <laughs> <laughs> the next obvious rung on the ladder. From, Absolutely. From yeah. homelessness to DJ's food hall to international opera star to, to real estate. So, so now you're a real estate auctioneer and that I'm sure gives you a, a, you know, a bit of fun. It's, there's a bit of performance there. There's a lot of voice projection and, um, and a fair bit of excitement involved in all of that. But looking, at, looking back now, looking back now on that, that boy that you were, can you stand back and look at him and, and how do you feel about him? Yeah, it, it's... It's really interesting because I do. A, I spend a lot of time reflecting um, now, and I'm 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 studying psychology at, at Monash as well now. So I, I have this this whole set of tools and, and different lenses to to reflect with. Um, and I'd always had this really positive story about my my childhood. Um, you know, I was lucky enough to have this independence and to be able to forge my own path and do things the way. I wanted to do it and, and it was the only I, life I, I ever knew and um, it was great. Uh, I loved my time uh, on, on the streets and living in cars. It was exciting. Um, I didn't have to do things I didn't want to and I got to, you know, I've, I've lived this wonderful, wonderful journey and, um, and that's, I think, been a very functional, um, functional story or a, a functional telling of some of the facts that were there. But, but now I look back on it and as I've... Um, you know, come to a period in life where there've been significant challenges, and I've had to work my way through that and find out what, what's what's led to that, and 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 actually realise the trauma that was there, and 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 see 
the, the very the, the challenges I had. Like to to me, growing up in in foster care and not meeting my mum until fifteen, living on on the streets, and and that that that's that was just normal. That's that's <laughs> it's a normal life living in a caravan park and such. And and realizing, no, that's that's not the common story. And and I can still have compassion for the adults in my life, but actually look at myself and go, oh, that was really hard. I feel really sad for that boy and what he went through um, and the, the loneliness that, that he had um, and, and that sense of rejection and the lack of a real home, um, of a real base, of a real community that watched over him and looked after him and guided him and supported him um, or, or who were at least there so that in his mind he, he knew he had somewhere to go. Um, and it makes me really sad um, when uh, I, I look at my children and, and they are the absolute light of my life and, and I look at what they have and that they've got the benefit of everything that I and, and we as parents have learnt. Um, and then I look back at, at myself as a child and it's... It's quite devastating. It's quite devastating. And that's one of the reasons I've I've gone um, into this course of study because I want to understand myself. I want to be able to help my children. I want to be able to help the people who who come to me looking for help. And, um, you know, I mentioned I've I've got ADHD and that, that's wrought havoc throughout my life for me and the, the people around me. But now I have some insight and I know how to work with it. I don't like wearing the mask anymore. I don't like having to be... Anyone I'm, I'm not. I, I like who I am. I accept who I am. So I share who I am. Stephen, thank you so much for sharing your beautiful story. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for, um, thanks for the opportunity to do so. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.